We're going to jump into the Bible now. Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Acts. If you guys don't have Bibles, uh, raise your hand. We'd love to get you a Bible, Acts 16. So we've been going through a journey series uh, in the book of Acts for kind of a lengthy amount of time. We are uh, halfway through in this book, almost more than halfway through, actually. And uh, we're just going to keep going through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, making our way through uh, chapter 16. So we looked at, last week, uh, a good portion of Acts chapter 16. We looked at mainly three uh, character studies uh, at some really important figures that were part of that story. We looked at a gal by the name of Lydia. Uh, there was a gal, she was identified only merely as a slave girl. And then the third person was uh, a Roman guard. So those are the three people we looked at. But what we also said was there's a lot more at play within the storyline uh, that I wanted to spend a little bit more time on. So I said we're going to look at the remainder of the chapter kind of from a different angle uh, this week. So that's where we're at. So what I want to do is uh, read the passage that we'll be looking at, mainly uh, chapter 16, verses 25 to 31, and then we'll kind of backtrack, um, and then we'll pray. We'll get to work looking at this. Uh, the message for today, I'm going to call uh, simply Jesus is Lord, and there's a reason for that, uh, for two reasons. One is that the phrase Jesus is Lord actually plays into the very uh, narrative itself. It's what uh, Luke records that Paul the Apostle states Something that Paul says, uh, he says if to this guy, we'll read it, that if you trust that Jesus is Lord, you and your household and whatnot will be saved. But also, it plays into the very narrative itself in uh, more in- indirect ways. Uh, in terms of everything that happens or transpires in the chapter uh, is all from this uh, rubric or framework that Jesus truly is Lord. So what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of ask the question, like, what does it really mean? For Jesus to be Lord. And we'll uh, make some observations about that and look at that and hopefully bring some clarity. Uh, if there's any bit of uh, mist or fogginess in your mind as to what that means, hopefully uh, there'll be some clarity at the end of this. So let me read this passage. I'll pray and then we'll jump in and get to work. So beginning at verse 25, chapter 16 says this. At about midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Verse 29. But the jailer then called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. This is God's word. God, we pray right now that you would open our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to understand what this means, the fact that Jesus is Lord. And God, if there's any faulty understanding as to what that really means and how it implies and how it plays out in our lives. God, if there is any form of uh, uh, either deformity in the way that we understand that or any form of domestication in terms of what that means. God, that somehow we have pulled the teeth out of this radical claim and we've created something that is harmless and powerless, then we ask you, God, that you would help us to um, allow you to give it teeth again and allow you to give it some level of potency and power in our lives, in our hearts, um, and let it transform us, God, we pray. 
Let it recapture our attention, our affections. God, I pray that we would no longer be in a status of boredom uh, with regard to your word, but it would radically come to life and our hearts would swell with love and affection. God, for you in a brand new way like we've never had before. Um, Help me to be faithful, to communicate this and teach this. And I pray, God, that you would help every other person here to be faithful to hear and not just hear, but to truly believe and to allow that belief uh, move into a path of obedience and trust and faithfulness. And so uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to start with a quote from a scholar, New Testament scholar, by a guy by the name of Michael Bird. Um, he is a professor of New Testament down in Australia, and here's what he says. To profess Jesus as Lord is the singular most important confession a person can make about who Jesus is and about the relationship to him. So just pause on that and think about that. Think about the, the heaviness of this. Um, that's, that's a pretty bold statement to say that phrase, Jesus Lord, whatever that means. Again, we'll try to understand what that is. Whatever Jesus Lord means, he's saying that this is the singular most important statement anybody can make. All right, you can say, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my pal. Jesus is my friend. Jesus, whatever. All of that is insignificant and pales in comparison to that other statement, which is Jesus is Lord, so whatever that means, it's so important. This guy uses bold language to say it's the singular most important statement anyone can say in terms of their relationship to him. Uh, To identify Jesus as Lord is to state that God the Father has appointed the crucified and risen man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the master and commander of the cosmos. That's just a a mouthful. It's theologically deep and rich. Uh, I would highly recommend you just think about that and consider that and wrestle with the reality of that because this is what he's saying. That, that God the Father has appointed Jesus, this crucified and risen uh, Lord of Nazareth to be the master and commander of the entire cosmos. In other words, every single thing is part of what we would describe as the created order. So what is that? Um, everything that's seen as well as everything that's unseen, meaning microscopic stuff as well as really big things like quasars. Uh, he's saying that Jesus is the king and Lord and master over all of this. You realize how big a claim this is? If I were to tell you, hey, what's up? Uh, it's my birthday, and for my birthday present, I have become the king over an entire cosmos. You'd be like, he's gone crazy too. Yeah, because that, that, those things just simply don't work together. Like, no, I have no authority, no backing, no ability to back that claim. So apparently, this is the claim of the New Testament, that Jesus is the king over all things. It goes on to say, to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord with one's lips by surrendering one's heart and bowing metaphorically and or literally one's knees means that one recognizes that Jesus is the ultimate authority over all things. So do you realize how powerful this is? What he's stating very clearly and categorically is that to claim with your lips to state or to make the assumption Jesus is Lord, you're not just simply saying, yeah, I'm part of this religion called Christianity. That may be part of it, But you can say, I'm part of this thing called Christianity and live as if Jesus is not the king over your life. You you following? You can live as if drugs are the real authority over your life. Greediness is the real authority over your life. Unforgiveness and vengeance is the real authority of your life. Patriotism, extreme patriotism is the extreme or the authority over your life. Being a liberal is the authority over your life. Being a Democrat is the authority over your life. You can live as if something other than Jesus is the ultimate expression of authority and power and influence over your life. You can live like that, 
even though you're telling all your friends, and on your Facebook you know, profile, Christian. When I ask you religion, I'm Christian. So we have to wrestle with this. We have to think about this because apparently it's so important, so significant that you can actually make claims with your mouth that are totally inconsistent with the reality of your life. This is what we have to think about. So with that being said, I want to jump in and begin to kind of understand and unpack and look at this idea. So first of all, we've got to do a little bit of a geeking out and to understand a little bit about the usage of language and words that are being used here. So the phrase... Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? The word Jesus is just the name for, for Jesus, this you know, physical human manifestation of God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the name Jesus means uh, God is Savior, or Jehovah is our, our salvation. And he lived, obviously. We, we know the story of Jesus, of course. Hopefully you guys do. And uh, Jesus li- literally is more than just what we would oftentimes attribute to him, but we see within the storyline that Jesus, it says, Jesus is Lord, and the phrase Jesus is Lord, the next word is, uh, we think of the concept of time frame. Like, he's not that he will one day be, not that he was at one point in the past, but present tense, that Jesus is now currently Lord. That's the assertion of Scripture. It's really important to note this. Uh, the assertion of the Bible is not that Jesus one day will come back and be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's not what it's saying. Yes, Jesus will come back. Yes, he will set up a kingdom in a way that is tangible and seen and recognized and understood. So much so, it actually says, as the waters cover the earth, so will the glory of God cover this earth. Um, but right now, the assertion of the New Testament is that Jesus is now King of kings and Lord of lords. Not was, again, past tense, but is now, present tense. So again, the last word here is the word Lord. What does the word Lord mean? Jesus is Lord. Now, the word Lord that's in the Greek is the Greek word kurios. Uh, it's kind of a technical title that's used in a lot of different ways throughout the New Testament. So throughout the New Testament, you'll find that word kurios. Uh, it can also denote anybody who just has some level of authority or power or responsibility over someone else. Uh, in the ancient world, slaves had masters. The word that was used for masters in the Greek was kurios. Uh, or in the Latin, it would have been known as dominos. Now, uh, the language of master and or lord, uh, we as American People, for the most part, are, are you know, notably uncomfortable with language like that. So if someone were to come to you and be like, hey, I'd prefer to be called by the title master. Is that cool? Or how about dominator? Dominus, right? Get the word dominus. Like, can you call me, you know, dominus Brian? So it's actually funny. There's side stories. Uh, one of the gals uh, in our church that is involved with our children's ministry, the gal that actually leads our children's ministry, her little son um, didn't know how to say Pastor Brian. So he's like, Master Brian? <laughs> And I'm like, I like that. That has a really good ring to it. Master Brian. Like, it's really good. Master Brian. Like, I, I, I will respond to that. It's a really great title. Master Brian. I like that. So we're, for the most part, uncomfortable with language of dominator and or, you know, a, a chief head authority or sovereign. We're very uncomfortable with that because it completely goes against every bit of uh, American sensibilities. Because we are not a nation with a sovereign. We are a nation with sovereigns. That's the idea. It's kind of the American dream. We are the king of our own lives, or the queen of our own lives, or the master of our own fate. It's kind of the idea. And, uh, you know, we vote a king. The king is not an ultimate, absolute sovereign over us. Uh, There's rules and laws, checks and balances that are set in place so that they don't become a king, an authority, a sovereign over us. So the language is sovereign, or or, or one who dominates, or leads, or master language. Uh, This is language that we bristle against as Americans. 
So um, this is really important to understand this because when we start talking about the concept of, of Scripture and the phrase Jesus is Lord, you have to uh, recognize that we don't just hear that language as a blank slate or a blank canvas. We hear it through modern-day sensibilities, and for the most part, we, we bristle against that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is a master over my life. He's, he's sovereign over everything that he's laying claim to every nook and cranny of my life. That ain't cool. Like, we, that's how we think about it. We're like, that's really creepy. That's kind of trolly. God wants to be a troll over my life? No, he wants to be Lord over your life. Vast difference. He wants to be ultimately in, over all things, how we think, how we decide, how we choose, how we live. And let me say one thing, because right now I can see for some of us, we have a really hard time with that. Because we assume this false notion that we are ultimately in control of our, our lives. But a lot of sociological studies have really kind of proven, again, even non-Christian sociological studies have proven that's actually not true. There are all sorts of means and ideas and marketing and advertising actually shapes how we think and to whom we will actually give ourselves over to. Do you realize that that's what addiction is? Addiction, by definition, is something that actually lays claim and has authority over us and shapes how we think and shapes how we spend our money and shapes how we invest our time and shapes how we react and respond to people, whether it be uh, uh, according to shame or guilt or whether it be according to power and authority and strength and pridefulness. Uh, That's what addiction is. So addiction is a very clear, acute way of something having authority. It is the master, to use biblical New Testament language, Jesus says, uh, those who sin are slaves to sin. So Jesus even describes all of us have a Lord of something. Something is the Lord of our lives. Something governs. Something leads. Something is sovereign. Something guides. Something informs. Something gives influence to us as to how we live our lives. All of us. N- n- you know, no one is outside of this, this reality. And so what Christianity is about is really can be summarized in this idea of coming to the fact of saying, no, no, Jesus is Lord over my life. Jesus is master. And what we see with Jesus, again, within the gospel story, is that he is the only master that makes radical claims for our lives and then himself gives himself entirely to us and then gives us life instead. Every other thing that claims over our lives, hey, trust me, follow me, follow this idea, Follow this self-help path, and you will have life. You'll have friends. You'll be able to influence people. You'll be wealthy. You'll be healthy. You'll have six-pack abs. You'll be younger. You'll have shinier teeth. You'll have whatever. The fact of the matter is at some point, those things will fail us. When they fail us, we break with it. And also at the same time, they're always making radical claims, but we are the ones that are always having to pick up the bill. We are the ones that are having to reinvest our lives, give something. We end up giving more than what it ever gives back to us. Totally different than what the gospel claims. Jesus makes radical claims. He says, come follow me. Take up your cross. Die. Follow me. I mean, uh, the, the reality of that is enough to do an entire message on myself uh, another time, but I'm not going to. But again, the idea that Jesus is saying is, come follow me. Make me the Lord over your life, the master over your life. And you'll live. So that's what we see within the New Testament, this idea kind of playing out. Um, in the Gospels, we see that uh, Jesus oftentimes uh, was addressed as Lord. It oftentimes, for the most part, means uh, sir or master. Again, it was a common phrase. There are other occasions we see this phrase or concept, kurios, 
uh, reshaping within the New Testament to have more significant meaning over the life of Jesus. So, for example, um, there are other occasions when it's clearly intended to convey that Jesus has some level of divine authority. Uh, So, for example, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the exaltation of Jesus, what we would call um, uh, the ascension uh, into glory. We see all of these things uh, that Jesus... Uh, from the early church was then beginning to be referred to as Lord in identical ways in which in the Old Testament, Yahweh was identified as God. So, so the language throughout the New Testament is, uh, is kind of morphing, uh, changing uh, to identify, or I should say to include Jesus and use language from the Old Testament that identifies Yahweh as Lord to say that Jesus is himself Lord. So rather than just simply being a peasant preacher, Jesus the New Testament claim is that Jesus, yes, was a peasant preacher. Yes, he was a good man. Yes, he was a guy that walked around Galilee and knew how to make good meal for a lot of people. Yes, he was a guy that knew how to open the eyes of the blind. Yes, he knew how to preach good messages. Yes, he knew how to be nice to his enemies. But he was far more than that because he indeed, according to the New Testament, was actually God come in the flesh, God himself. So to say that Jesus is Lord is to basically attribute to Christ alone ultimate, absolute, complete authority over all the cosmos. Question is, is he Lord over your heart? Is he Lord over your life? And what does that even mean to have him Lord over all things in our lives? Well, for one, I'll just kind of give you a quick little punchline. Uh, There's not going to be complete, exhaustive answers to that because that is what you begin to understand and practice throughout the remainder of your Christian walk. That's what the Christian walk is all about. It's, you know, as Eugene Peterson describes it, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience to what? Long obedience to the claim, to the reality that Jesus is is Lord. That's what the long obedience is. It's learning to say yes to Jesus as king, as sovereign, over every area of my life. Over how I spend my money, how I think about power, how I discern the concept of sexuality, how I understand every other aspect of my life. It's about learning to understand what does God have to say about something, and how do I then bring my heart into a place of saying, yes, Lord, to you. Yes, King, in every way. You're the sovereign. Uh, to you, borrow another analogy, you are the, the master, shaper. You're the master over my life. And, and I'm just simply the clay. You sculpt, you shape, you remake uh, my life into something, whatever it is that you intend for it to be. And that's where the Bible describes true freedom, true life actually comes. Now, again, I realize that radically is different than the culture in which we live in because the culture in which we live in, for the most part, says freedom, true freedom, is found in removing any barriers or limitations that keep you from doing what you truly want to do. That's the way freedom has come to be identified with our culture. Freedom in our culture is the ability to do whatever you want with any uh, inhibitors in place. That idea of freedom, for one, actually doesn't work. For two... Uh, at some point breaks down. Because what happens if you get sick or you uh, have some form of an accident where you are no longer actually able to fulfill these dreams? You just remain bound forever? That's not freedom. The true freedom that's actually described in Scripture is a freedom that is for us to be able to fully be who God designed for us to be. And as we find ourselves being all that God created us to be, we find ourselves completely flourishing, or at least on a path towards flourishing, that God has planned for us. So someone gave this analogy, I think is a great analogy. Think of a fish. If a fish is swimming around in his little, you know, little goldfish swimming around in his little bowl, 
And in his mind, he's like, man, be truly free. So I'm going to jump out of this water and get onto that table because that's where it looks like freedom happens right there. People eat, they dialogue, they drink really good espresso. Life happens on the table. And if I can get to that table, I'll be truly free. And it's able to somehow jump out and it's, it's no longer free because freedom for a fish is the ability to fully be a fish in its water. Freedom for a fish is not to get out of the fishbowl onto a table. It's to die. And when we recognize God created us for a reason, for a purpose, and to fully embrace and accept whatever it is that he's called us to be, uh, and to deny anything else that uh, others would say, no, this is okay, this is all right, so what culture says is fine. When everything that we believe in Scripture or we believe about God uh, synchronizes and works together symmetrically with the world around us, at some point we have to step back and say, is, is this even now God's plan or God's desire? Or are we making stuff up as we go? But again, what does Jesus Lord mean? That's what I want to try to get back to in terms of the central concept. I'm going to look at three things, and we'll just kind of wrap this up. So three assertions that we think about with regard to this idea of Jesus as Lord. Because what we see is that Jesus is Lord, that phrase, or Jesus as Lord, that concept, really was this rubric that shaped everything in the early church. Everything they did was shaped radically by this concept of Jesus as Lord. So, for example, baptism. Why did they get baptized? Baptism was basically a way of saying, my past life is not what governs me anymore, has no authority over me anymore. My past sins, my past actions, my past misdeeds, my past violations against God, my past brokenness that, that I've inherited from other people, uh, uh, hurting and wounding and abandoning me. Whatever my past is, it's, it's being remade new because Jesus is Lord. So they get baptized. They go into the water. They come out of the water, a brand new person. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Even the sharing of what we would call the Lord's Supper. Why would they do that? Why would you sit down and break bread and drink a cup with everybody? Males, females, blacks, whites, Africans, Asians, Europeans. Why would they do that? Because that was not happening in ancient Rome. There was all this stratification throughout the culture. But within Christian circles, you had all of this radically rich diversity coming together over a meal. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He's king. Jesus has literally reshaped how we do community. Jesus has reshaped how we think about each other. Jesus has reshaped how we think about race and sex and all of these other relationships that are part of society at large. He's reshaped us. He's literally creating a brand new society around Christ. That's, that's what the gospel is all about. So that being said, I want to look at three more other elements that we see kind of play out within a chapter, and I'll wrap this up. Uh, and they all kind of begin with the word W. So those of you like alliteration, you're welcome. Uh, number one, we'll look at work, how work is something that is directly impacted by uh, the fact that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, we'll take a look at witness. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at the subject really of worship, how worship was actually reshaped by the fact of the claim that Jesus is Lord. So let's jump in. Number one, work. So with regard to the subject of work and or vocation, if you want to think of it in a bigger, broader term, uh, we see, for example, Paul in the entire chapter. I'm just kind of recapping some of the things. Um, what's happening in chapter 16? Well, uh, the main central character in the story, obviously, is Jesus. But beyond Jesus, we have Paul is one of the main characters in the story. And he's going around telling about Jesus. Paul has literally traveled really far from home. Why? Well, the answer is Jesus is Lord. It's a simple answer. Uh, but Paul was literally following Jesus wherever Jesus was leading him. So we would describe Paul as a missionary or a church planter. And so he was going around all throughout the Roman Empire 
and creating these little pockets, these little communities called churches, called, called, uh, called out ones, people that were called out from culture or society at large, that was prone towards decay and brokenness and all these other things uh, that was uh, bringing brokenness throughout the Roman Empire, and is bringing them together around King Jesus, that Jesus was king, Jesus was central, and all of these different groups of communities and people Paul went around planting. So Paul's entire life was shaped by uh, Jesus as Lord. Paul, if you remember anything about the life and the history of Paul, Paul was what we would call the persecutor of the church. Paul hated Christianity. Paul hated Christians. Paul was actually on a mission to eliminate and to destroy and or to end Christianity. Until Jesus met him, if you again remember the story, uh, what happened? What shifted in Paul's life? Again, the answer, Jesus became Lord. You following so far? Is this making sense to you guys? Jesus became Lord in Paul's life. And because Jesus became Lord in Paul's life, Jesus used the energy and the power and the strength and the abilities and the training and the background and backstory of Paul's life to now become a part of this future movement of planting the church. Now, question is, does that mean that everybody who follows Jesus, who claims that Jesus is the Lord, do they have to go be part of church planting movements? The answer is, if that's what God calls you to. But for the most part, probably no. Probably most of you know. What, what, what does that look like for you? It might look like you being a teacher or being a server, or being a manager, or owning a business, or being in the marketplace, or you know, pushing a lawnmower, whatever it is that you have in your life right now, recognizing that that thing is a gift from God, but it's not just simply a means to make money, to somehow buy more stuff that uh, impresses nobody, and that needs to be taken care of, or needs to have some sort of insurance to protect it. Uh, at the end of the day, if that's the end... Uh, then at some point it will self-corrupt and self-destruct. But what I think understanding that Jesus Lord does is it breathes a whole new element of life into your vocation. Because what now you begin to do is you begin to see that whether you are going about being a part of a church planting movement like Paul did, or just simply going about the daily grind, if that's, for, I would say for a Christian, there really is no daily grind. The daily grind is a mission field to love Jesus to serve others that are broken, that are hurting, that are lost, that are far from God, if we see that Jesus really is Lord. That means that every platform we have, no matter what big, how big it is, or how big the sphere of influence that some of us might have or how small that sphere of influence might be, is another opportunity, another unique way to interact with people that maybe don't know Jesus, that are far from Christ, to show forth, to demonstrate the love of God. That's what we see with regard to that. So the fact that Jesus is Lord actually reshaped people within the New Testament. And Paul actually would write about this a little bit later as he would address, you know, masters and slaves and so on and so forth. And again, uh, it's different contexts of masters and slaves as we would typically think about in ancient uh, uh, American history. But the fact of the matter is what we see is that in the ancient world, I should say, is that Paul was constantly saying that, look, uh, think about the idea of work and vocation around the reality of Jesus as Lord. And it will re- radically reshape the way that you think about your work. The second thing that we see is the claim that Jesus as Lord also impacts our witness. Or another way to think about this is our conduct. Uh, New Testament uses another w- uh, word to describe this, our walk. How we walk, how we live. I like that idea. How we walk, the way that we walk, the way that we live our lives. Uh, th- just the day-to-day interactions with people around us. This is what we see. So within this story, we see kind of this, uh, we, we kind of get back into the narrative as we see Paul going around, just bearing testimony to the, to the fact that Jesus is Lord. 
And so part of doing that involved just talking with people, interacting with people. And so we kind of pick up the story here is that Paul interacts with this gal we described her last week as just a slave girl. That's how the, uh, Luke narrates the story to us. We don't know much about her. We don't know much about her background. Uh, what, we, what little we do know is that the word that's used to describe her, that she was a slave girl, uh, the word that's used to describe girl was probably a young teenage girl. So this would have been a girl that, in modern terms, we would think of it, she was, a traf- she was trafficked. Uh, whether it be sex traffic or traffic for some sort of work, uh, we don't know if it was like sex trafficked or not, but the fact of the matter is she was trafficked. She was trafficked to make a profit for a master, someone that had literally had ownership over her soul, over her body. She couldn't do anything unless her master allowed her to basically do what she wanted to do. So she's this acute picture of what it looks like to be completely enslaved. She is literally, by definition, a slave girl. But there's something more at play within the passage here because we're also told that there's some sort of demonic force or power that has control over her. So when she would go into these fits of spiritual, I don't know, drama or whatever the case is, she would then begin to speak um, and uh, another voice would kind of come out of her. She would give forth like predictions about other people's lives and somehow it was some level of accuracy because uh, people were coming back to her and the guy that had owned her was actually making money off of her. Um, So within the story, we're actually told that Paul was going around preaching Jesus and telling people about Christ. And this girl was following Paul, and she was also basically saying the same message that Paul was. But like we looked at last week, um, Paul probably didn't want her as kind of a a, a PR manager. Like she just probably, with her head spinning on her uh, shoulders and spewing out nasty stuff, I envision like uh, the the, the character in The Exorcist, right? Uh, This crazy demon-possessed girl going around, uh, speaking forth, these guys are the voices of the Most High God. Paul, it says that he was so mad, so angry at, as to what she was doing. He turns around and he says, he casts out this demon out of her. And all of a sudden, uh, whatever was controlling her no longer was controlling her. She literally was a brand new, changed, freed person, whatever language you like to use to describe it. She was a different person. Whatever power had bound her, she was now free. So free that she was no longer able to go into these uh, trances and speak forth these prophetic words because a demon no longer had control over her, which meant, are you ready for what this meant? It meant that her slave master was no longer able to make money off of her. So you can kind of see where this is going. So first of all, we see that Paul, as he's going around proclaiming Jesus as Lord, there are these malevolent forces that are coming against this message, this claim. Uh, Paul's, if you want to think of it this way, the the claim Jesus is Lord is a counterclaim to all these other claims. Religion is Lord. Money is God. uh, Politics is God. The claim Jesus is Lord is a counterclaim to all this. And so what we see is that in that contest, we we kind of have this idea of these spiritual forces coming against her, coming, uh, coming against her, and then ultimately coming against Paul. Second thing that we see in verse 19 is uh, we see these prophet motives were part of this malevolent uh, forces coming against the message that Jesus is Lord. Because now this guy was obviously without money. He was not able to make money. Uh, and if you have ever questioned as to whether or not money is this powerful, uh, just, just, I mean, I started watching on Amazon, probably not the, the best movie, but um, very fascinating, The Untouchables. And it's, you know, Al, Al Capone. So has anybody heard of that? Great movie, probably not the best, like I wouldn't endorse it because it's got bad language and stuff. But anyways, so there you go. Um, the, the idea, though, is uh, driven by money. Like Al Capone is this rich, you know, power broker. He's part of, you know, 
this racket of bringing in uh, of alcohol. It was during the time of Prohibition. And, and obviously the whole storyline is about uh, his prophets being attacked and destroyed because the law is somehow prohibiting the, uh, the peddling of all this. And so you, you see a lot of murder going on. And this, this is exactly what's happening in Paul's day. In this context, you, you have these forces of, of money, of power coming against uh, what was at play, which is this claim that Jesus is Lord. And thirdly, the idea of uh, political prejudice. And so let me just read you the passage here. We'll kind of jump into the story and kind of wrap this up. So verse 20, it just simply says this. Um, but when the disciples gathered about him, uh, sorry, reading the wrong passage. I should probably turn to Acts chapter 16. Okay, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these are the Jews, and they are dis- uh, disturbing our city. So the magistrates would have been the, the leaders. These would have been the guys that had the political clout, political power. These were the guys at the top of the food chain in that ancient uh, Roman colonized city. And it says in verse uh, 21, they advance customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept um, and or to practice, and then the crowd joining together against them uh, attacked them. It says, in the magistrates, they tore their garments and they gave the orders to beat these guys, that's Paul and Silas, with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them and they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order, uh, he put them in the inner prison and he fastened their feet into stocks. And so what we see here within the story is that uh, these uh, political powers are now playing into this whole situation. So what you have is, in this ancient world, uh, this, uh, this union of, of religion, of money, and politics coming together in, sense, in concert against the claim, Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, do you understand? It actually plays into the very narrative of all of these areas. If Jesus is Lord, and truly is, you realize that the phrase, Jesus is Lord, actually has something to say about false religion, and how to, you know, not all religions lead to God. Not all religions lead to life. This is an important thing, and I know in our modern-day pluralistic society, somehow we want the narrative to shift or bend a little bit to say, for the sake of inclusivity, the fact is that all religions are the same. And the fact is, the reality is, simply not true. Not all religions are the same. There are similarities in a lot of religions. And yes, there are Christians that have some, sometimes come across as very arrogant and very uncaring and very rude in some ways in terms of addressing these subjects. But the fact is, is that no, not all religions are the same. But the reality is that Christ actually reshapes how we think about religion. It, it leads to a true, wholesome uh, healing, a, a redemptive way of understanding what it means to relate to God and how God calls us to live according to him. Uh, the claim, Jesus is Lord, also shapes, reshapes how we think about money. You better believe it does. Because if you claim to follow Jesus and you are just as stingy and careful uh, to protect your money as you've always been, then there's a very good possibility that you have not understood the reality of the claim that Jesus is Lord even over our money. In other words, it may be possible that you may be giving lip service to the fact that Jesus is Lord, but the reality is that money may still be a very strong, big stronghold over your life. It may still actually exercise authority and power over you, either by way of constantly keeping you in a place of fear and anxiety because you don't have enough, or if you do have a lot, you are always constantly in a place of not wanting to be generous and give it away because you're afraid of always moving into this place of not having enough. 
the fact is, is that you may still be bound by this force, this malevolent force of, of money. And what about politics? And the fact is, is that the word politics, don't be afraid of the word politics. A lot of times Christians are afraid of that. We're like, we don't want to talk about politics because politics is so divisive. Well, look, at the end of the day, the word politics just simply comes from the uh, Greek word polis, which means city or order. Uh, the idea of politics just means how you order your city. So if you're going to live together, whether it be in a neighborhood or in a family or in a church or in an office, there has to be some rule in which people agree to live according to. We have to. And that's, that's just simply what politics is. And uh, Jesus actually has a politic, believe it or not. The kingdom of God is about a politic. It's about how people come together in a different way, not according to Caesar, not according to Pharaoh, not according to Babylon, not according to the ways of this world, not according to greed, not according to power plays, not according to the strong eat the weak, but a radically different way where the weak are protected by the strong. And the forgotten are loved by those who have power and authority. And those who have power, they use power in a way to protect and guard and provide. And this community comes together and loves and cares for one another. And rather than taking enemies out and blasting them and destroying them, enemies somehow are shown an uncanny amount of, of love and kindness, just like Jesus showed to his enemies. So with that being said... Uh, all of these things. Again, I, the, these might not be giving you concrete answers on how to live them all out, but hopefully they're at least causing you to think about the concept, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, will radically reshape how you think about religion, money, and politics. How you think about ordering and organizing society, and what does that look like? So the final thing I want to look at is this concept of Worship. Actually, one more thing before I jump in. I want to read another little quote from Michael Byrd about the subject of uh, political prejudices. And he's got some interesting things to say about this. Just listen to what he says. Imagine you are in an extravagant hotel in Berlin. This is kind of a pretty uh, profound statement he was about to say. So just listen to it. And again, if anything, wrestle with it. Think about it. Uh, Don't write it off immediately, but just ponder it. He goes on to say, imagine you are in in an extravagant hotel in Berlin during the 1930s for a dinner party attended by a mix of lawyers, doctors, businessmen, and military officers. While the evening is mostly polite and cordial, with small talk, a military officer suddenly taps his glass and proposes a toast to the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. Then, as everyone stands and raises their glasses, you, being a committed Christian, you are, you interrupt and you propose an alternative toast. Just pause and think about that, all right? Imagine in your mind, the Fuhrer is ultimate power, he's a symbol, he's an icon of ultimate power. You don't mess with Hitler, all right? You stand up and you propose, I, I got an alternate post, uh, toast. Next one. He says, everyone is startled and looks at you as you proudly utter, Jesus, the Jew from Nazareth, is the true leader. You probably won't have long before the Gestapo comes and takes you away to a, vast, uh, to a very nasty place for making such a subversive claim. So is, is that a subversive claim? Of course it is. Because you're basically saying, uh, Jesus is Lord. Hitler, you you have no authority, no power, except it was given to you by your creator, God. And you're squandering it to crush and ruin and kill and destroy and divide. Jesus, according to the counter-narrative, is the true king. And he goes on to say, it's a subversive claim, lest lest I seem to be overstating the political dimensions of Jesus' lordship, keep in mind that Nero, uh, he was a crazy leader, over Rome, uh, Nero did not have Christians thrown to the lions because they said 
Jesus is Lord of my heart. So listen, the Romans were not interested in the internal dispositions of people's lives. Confession of Jesus as Lord was always a scandalous and a subversive claim. So Nero did not have Christians thrown to the lions for sport because Christians were going around saying, Jesus is the Lord of my heart, and I really, really, really love him. Now, that's not an untrue statement. If Jesus is Lord of your heart, that's great. He should be Lord of your heart. But that's not how it was being interpreted. In fact, the reality is it goes way beyond one's own individual and the individualistic heart and experience into this cosmic claim that Jesus is Lord over all. That's what Nero and others bristled against and sought to snuff out and destroy. What I would suggest in modern-day Christianity, Christian circles, especially in America, we have, for the sake of political correctness, for the sake of avoiding um, any form of diversity or challenges or pushback or angry mobs, we've domesticated this radical claim, Jesus is Lord, to Jesus is Lord of my heart. Do you see this? In the first century, what landed Paul in direct conflict with the religious leaders, with the economic leaders, and with the political leaders was not this individualistic claim that, hey, Jesus is Lord of our hearts. If you want, you can accept Jesus as your personal Savior too. It was Jesus is Lord of this universe, and one day he will come to set this whole thing right. And if you are on the wrong side of his kingdom, you will face the king. You see how subversive that is. An invitation always in the gospel is to put your confidence in this king. It's to say, Jesus is Lord. In closing, we see that it also affects their worship. And I'll wrap it up with this. That the idea that we see here in the story, we see Paul and Silas, who were just brutalized. They were beaten. Um, imagine, in your mind, mob rule. People are coming against them. They were actually told they had sticks. So I have no idea what types of sticks those were, but I would imagine sticks against body doesn't feel good and uh, would leave, no doubt, uh, bruises and perhaps blood and perhaps open, gaping wounds. And so imagine, and perhaps even broken bones, imagine Paul and Silas uh, in a Roman dungeon. And we're told at the beginning of the story, that, or the story that we just read this morning, uh, wrap it up with this, at about midnight, here's Paul and Silas in deep pain and anguish and incredible uh, torment. It says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Why? One reason. Jesus is Lord. In their mind, they had settled this. They realized Caesar's not Lord. The magistrates are not Lord. Money is not Lord. Politic of the day is not Lord. Demonic forces are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And our Savior was one that was himself brutalized. Our Savior was one that himself was on a cross. Our Savior was one himself that was abandoned, and betrayed, and crushed, and oppressed. And our Savior was one that in the midst of his dark hour cried out to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Paul and Silas, with his understanding that Jesus is Lord, were able to, in the midst of their darkest hour, say, let's sing. 
to this king. What this shows us is a couple things. I mean, there's a lot of things that go off on this. One is that God does not promise a life that's free of suffering. The American dream slash Christian-influenced American dream says, trust Jesus and your life will be amazing. You'll get married, have a great house, an amazing job. Life will be amazing. Everything will be amazing because everything is awesome. But the reality is, is the Bible does not ever, ever make that claim, ever. In fact, what the Bible does say is that you will have suffering. You will have tribulation. There will be moments of extreme chaos and difficulty and hardship in the midst of your life. And the Bible never promises that you will have a pain-free life or a suffering-free existence. But what it does promise is that in the midst of that pain and suffering and challenge, you will have a God that is with you. And so therefore, Paul and Silas, in the midst of their pain and suffering, they remembered Christ is with us because Jesus is Lord. So therefore, they were able to lift up their voice. Jesus is Lord, affected and transformed how they worship, how they sang, how they engaged. Finish with this quote. I heard this not too long ago and really liked it, so I thought I'd share it with you guys. Gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. Gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. A lot of us uh, say we feel deep gratitude for God, and we might say I'm very thankful for God, but we never declare it. We never say it. We can come together in collective group singing, and we never speak it out. Really, what you might be feeling is gratitude. You just have this deep sense of gratitude in your heart. Thanksgiving is actually expressiveness. So if you know, remember back when you were like three, and your mom said, say thank you, because that's a way of basically demonstrating that I'm very, I'm very thankful that mom gave me a Trisket. And um, so you're able to, <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but um, maybe I need a Trisket. But the point of the matter is, it's a way of basically expressing gratitude. And if Jesus is Lord, it's a way of basically communicating, speaking forth, showing our gratitude via thanksgiving, speaking it, declaring it. So we're going to give you guys an opportunity to do that as we wrap this up. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read you one final closing passage, and I want you to think about it and see it with new eyes, because I realize for maybe some of us, if you've been brought up in any form of Christian circles, is one of those passages that you've heard at altar calls and moments of climax when the preacher's getting all sweaty and pulling hamstrings and all excited and is wanting to somehow close the deal and bring the plane into the landing field and to get you all excited. And though, so therefore, we miss the potency of this reality, but I want you to hear it with new ears because it is the crux. It is the summary of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So um, why don't we have the worship team come on up and uh, just listen to this passage. It's out of the book of Romans. I'll just read a couple of passages to you. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It says this. Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This language is almost identical to what Paul says to the Roman guard. It says, for with your heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the most basic definition, I would say, of a Christian in the Bible is one who confesses Jesus is Lord. If you want a simple definition, like someone asks you, what is a Christian? The most simple definition is someone who confesses with their lips, Jesus is Lord. So what does that mean? How do we live that? It'll take a lifetime to live it. But somewhere it begins with just simply that confession. Jesus is 
Lord over everything, over the cosmos, over my mind, over how I think about my vocation, over how I walk my daily witness, over how I view my sexuality, over how I think about marriage, over how I think about my future, over how I think about my past, over how I think about my presence, my presence. Jesus is Lord, has radical implications for every aspect of your life. The invitation of the gospel is always the same, to believe that, not just intellectually, but to let, as some would describe, the arms of your heart wrap around that reality. Let it become something that is brought inside of you, into you, where it begins to reshape and lay claim to a barren wasteland that we call our existence and to actually give us life in exchange for the broken, barren areas of our heart. To take our pasts of brokenness and ruin and sinfulness and being violated and or causing violation against other people and allowing Christ to reshape that. So my encouragement to you is to make that claim, to trust Jesus as Lord. Paul would say later that no one can actually do that apart from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that. And then one final thing Paul actually adds in 1 Corinthians 16. He says that if one does not love the Lord Jesus, he actually says he's still under a curse. And what Paul is referring to is this Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And if you don't, you're, you're still remaining under this curse. And what Paul is doing is he's merging together this reality of Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Yahweh come to rescue, to deliver, to save, to heal you. Trust him. So we're going to sing. I'll pray real fast. Um, and I'm going to invite you, because for some of you, what that means to proclaim with your lips that Jesus is Lord may take a physical reaction. It might look like you actually, physically, getting on your knees. As someone would before a sovereign, a king, and say, you are king. You take it all. Because that's what it means. You take it all. Everything. My confusion, past, broken, everything. You take it all. You be king over it all. Uh, for others of you, it might just look like coming to him and bringing all of your whole to him and just saying, Jesus, show me areas where I need more healing. But all of us, at some point, we have to wrestle with the reality of what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over our hearts as he is over the cosmos. So why don't we all stand? Let's respond. If you feel prompted before God, uh, there are some rugs in the front for you to just come before God. This is not about uh, us worried about how we look because, again, this is how Brian is Lord looks like in worship. If Brian is Lord in worship, and that's me for myself personally, then I, I want to look cool. I, I don't want to do things that would somehow disrupt the flow or cause others to think that I'm something other than what I'm, that I'm really not. So I'm not going to do things that might put me in a light that looks odd or weird. But if Jesus is Lord, then it doesn't matter what others think about me. Do you understand how this plays out? If Jesus is Lord, this means that no matter who you are, how you worship, how you sing, how you react to God, God's first. So let's respond to him. God, thank you for your love. As we respond now, we confess our sins. We turn from our, our ways, God, that we cling to, and we turn to you. So Jesus, come be Lord over our hearts, over this place. 
begin to live out, God, your lordship in our lives.